Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 29th, 2021. I'm delighted and grateful to be joined today by Fadi Karan. Fadi is a campaign is, is camp, a campaign's director for Avaz, a 60 million person strong global movement mobilizing for change. He leads Avaz Middle East and North Africa human rights work, as well as Avaz counter disinformation efforts. Fadi is a leading community organizer in Palestine, previously worked as UN advocacy officer at Al Haq. Fadi has appeared in the New York, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, uh, NPR, The Guardian, the AFP, Time Magazine, The Daily Telegraph, and other media outlets. And um, uh, I'm truly, truly grateful and honored given the important things that are happening and that he's in the middle of that he's that he's with us. Um, uh, last, just as an overview, um, last week, a Palestinian political activist, Nizar Banat, was arrested by the Palestinian Authority and died soon after in their custody. His family accuses the PA of murdering him. Following his death, Palestinians in the West Bank gathered for protests. The PA responded to these protests with violence and repression. According to the Palestinian human rights organization, Al-Haq, PA security forces, both in uniform and dressed as civilians, attacked protesters with batons and tear gas, attacked several journalists, and attacked human rights researchers who were monitoring the protests and confiscated their phones. Um, Fadi, I wanted to start just on a, on a personal note, um, because I know that you you knew Nizar Banat. You, you tweeted um, after he was killed, quote, a tragedy for Palestine. Nizar Banat was a leading critic of the Palestinian Authority, a candidate for the Legislative Council, and a loving father, who was arrested by the PA security forces this AM and was later announced dead at Hebron Hospital. PA security forces had arrested, threatened, and beaten him over the last years. They had fired live bullets at his home with his wife and kids inside. President Abbas is running an authoritarian regime, and his forces are sending a threatening message to all critics. I've known Nizar for 10 years. He loved Palestine endlessly. He was a beautiful speaker who mastered Arabic poetry. He was a brave soul who, despite arrest and abuse, would never allow anyone to break him. Nizar's family said he was bad, He was beaten badly by 20 members of Mahmoud Abbas's security forces when he was arrested. President Abbas has proved again he is nothing but a subcontractor for Israel's occupation. This murder will not pass. Um, just tell us more about, about who Nizar Banat was. Yeah, Nizar, th there's a lot to say about Nizar. And I, I have to start by saying it's, it's, I'm still shocked. And, and a lot of the people that know Nizar we were just talking this morning. It's, it still hasn't really settled um, for us. Um, Nizar was, was a figure that was larger than life. I first met him 10 years ago when we organized a conference to actually talk about the, the future of Palestine, what strategies need to be followed and what needs to happen uh, as relates to the Palestinian leadership. And I was just honestly uh, a bit jealous of, of Nizar when I first met him because the way he spoke um, Arabic was poetic. And between every sentence, he would say a term uh, like, you know, the, the, the traders, one of the terms he came up in Arabic with was tujar al-dhikrayat, which is the traders in memory. And that's how he described the, the current PA leadership as individuals who traded in memories from 50, 60 years ago of what their political party had done, but have not done anything since. And um, Nizar, after that event, and after we, we kind of connected on similar values and on a similar vision for the future of Palestine, invited us over to his house. And I, I was shocked to, to find he invited us for, for a beautiful dinner and we ate fish and I met his wife and kids. 
But what, what shocked me the most were two things. The amount of books he had, um, he was just an avid reader. And the second thing was that he was a carpenter. And that just despite his high level of intelligence, his, his many skills, he had chosen to be a carpenter because he didn't want to be in any way co-opted by the, the Palestinian uh, authority or any other actors. So he lived a healthy, modest life. And he spent his whole time doing two things, caring for his family and uh, defending Palestine. And one of the things, because he was such a beautiful speaker, because he was charismatic and because he was so well read on the, on the history and present of Palestine, he on, on social media, Palestinian social media, he became somewhat of a celebrity. And, um, I, you know, I, I remember nine years ago going down to Hebron to protest when he was first arrested by the PA, going down six years ago when he was beaten by them, uh, going down, um, you know, a, a few months ago when they had shot at his house and threat after threat, beating after beating, this man um, never gave up. He never stayed silent. The day he walked out of prison with, with a swollen face after being beaten, he opened his camera and, and spoke and said, if they think this is going to silence me, it won't. So that's the type of man Nizar was. Fadi, tell us a little bit about the, the, the nature of his of his challenge and critique to to the to the Palestinian Authority. Well, that's that's an excellent question, and th there's a lot in there because there, there's not one bone that's straight, as we would say in, in the Palestinian Authority. There's a lot of crookedness um, there. Um, I think Nizar's kind of core critique of the Palestinian Authority revolved around the fact that. Palestinians are still not free, they still do not have justice, they still don't live with dignity, and yet the Palestinian Authority plays the role of a subcontractor, of an Uncle Tom to, to the occupation. And so that was, that was his core critique, that he was a former member of Fatah, which is the ruling party. He was actually imprisoned in Jordan because he was an outspoken member of, of Fatah when he was in, in college. And he was arrested and beaten in Jordanian prisons uh, because of his uh, position and banned from, from entering Jordan after that. And he came back to Palestine, hoping that the party that he, he sacrificed and fought for would be continuing the struggle and realized that it wasn't. But then he began to become more granular, although that was the core critique. He would speak about different examples of corruption. So he spoke about most recently how the PA had signed a deal with the Israelis that was not transparent on giving the Israelis the Palestinian portion of, of new vaccines that were coming from Pfizer and return to getting expired vaccines from Israel. He spoke about the, the children of key PA leaders who were living the life and how, you know, he was doing everything he was doing. So his children and other Palestinian children would have the same opportunities as, a, as the 1% of PA children had. And he would cover how, how they, they lived a lavish life. The other thing he spoke about uh, most recently that, that really irked the Palestinian Authority was after Mahmoud Abbas canceled the elections planned on May 22nd and Nizar Banat was planning to, to run as, as a leading contender in those elections, he called for the, the EU and the international community to stop engaging and funding the Palestinian security forces. 
And that really um, angered uh, the Palestinian Authority because, you know, again, they, they rely uh, to a significant amount on, on that funding. So you've been really very involved in the, in the protests um, since uh, uh, Nizar Benat's death. Um, can you tell us about, about those protests, about the PA's response and, 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 and where that movement that you are part of uh, stands now? Well, it's, you know, I've been dealing with uh, the ramifications of that all day, actually, largely because um, one of the things they did, um, and I'll, I'm kind of starting backwards, but this is one of the most egregious things, is they, they started targeting female activists by sexually harassing them in the protests, and then by stealing their phones and sharing pictures from their phones on Facebook, on, on social media, compromising pictures. And so... What, what happened was the, the day Nizar was murdered, there was a call uh, to, to protest and hundreds came down to the streets and just naturally everybody began chanting, uh, the people want Abbas's regime to fall. And um, hundreds marched towards the presidential compound. The, the security forces, uh, the presidential guards specifically and the preventative security forces began firing tear gas at the same time, the general intelligence and other forces wearing civilian uniforms began uh, thuggishly grabbing key activists, beating them in the ground, and pulling them back. And yet, you know, the violence led to more people coming down to the street in other cities as well, in Hebron and Bethlehem. The, the escalation happened actually two days ago um, when specifically what they did was the PA quickly realized that the people had completely turned against it after the murder of Nizar. And so they didn't want the security forces to be publicly seen as the ones suppressing these protests. So they organized what they claim was a counter protest by members of the Fatah political party. In fact, members of Fatah that we know, uh, well-respected ones refused to go down to the street. 95% of those who came down were security forces carrying pistols and wearing civilian clothing. And what they did was a group of them besieged journalists and didn't allow and broke cameras so that the journalists wouldn't cover their crimes. And then the rest began kind of, they, they knew some of the key leaders, the key individuals. And so they started running after the key individuals in the protest, beating them um, you know, with, with different weapons from the backs of pistols to sticks and stones. And with the women, as I mentioned, sexually harassing them. But what, what's happening though, and I'll end here, is that it's continuing to escalate. They're, they hope that they would scare us away. They're also using tactics targeting me and others right now, you know, making us feel threatened to walk in the streets. But the truth is today, a new protest was announced for Saturday that's likely to be larger than the, the other protests. So, so it's not working, but they're using every tactic in their book to do so. And just one ironic and sad and painful note to add here, the weapons that they're using and some of the intelligence that they're using um, has been confirmed to be coming from the Israeli military. Just further proof that the, you know, the PA and Israel are not separate entities. They are part and parcel of the same system. I wanted to ask about that. I, I read reports that uh, that Nizar Banat was actually uh, taken in, uh, into custody in Area C, 
which uh, is the area under which Israel has full security and even civilian control. So do you, is there, do you know anything about whether Israel, the Israeli government was involved in the decision to, um, to, to, to arrest him or was that solely a, a, a PA decision? Well, we, we don't know if the Israeli side was involved in the decision to arrest him, but we do know he was arrested from the H2 area in Hebron, which requires um, Israeli um, permission for the Palestinian forces to enter into. And so the Israelis definitely knew and gave permission for, for this assassination to, to happen. Whether they had been part of making the decision about killing Nazar is, is a, something that needs to be investigated. So just for, for people who, who may not be as, as familiar um, with the relationship between the PA and the Israeli government, you know, because we've already had APAC putting out tweets basically saying, you know, you see, well, you know, uh, you only criticize Israel, you know, uh, why aren't you also focusing on, 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 on how terrible the PA is, as if they are adversarial opposing forces rather than, as you say, a subcontractor, one of the other, um, albeit with a complicated relationship. Can you just talk for people who may not be as familiar with, with the way the two entities interact? Yeah, and it's th this is one of the most, I would say, um, kind of complex parts of describing this, this conflict. And I, mean, I, th I think it's for the audience we're talking to, I think it's worth going a little bit back into history. And right. essentially, you know, just, just to explain how this system was built. And what happened was during, during the first Palestinian uprising in, in 1987, 1988, a Palestinian grassroots kind of movement and leadership began arising. The people who were leading the protests, the boycotts, the, the civil society volunteer works. Now, in that period, Palestinians, of course, still felt that the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which had for years been in Lebanon, sorry, in uh, Tunisia after being kicked out of Lebanon, was their representative, but it had kind of lost some of its shine and was far away from doing anything useful for Palestine, except for a few leaders in the PLO that were supporting what was happening on the ground here. But Yasser Arafat and, and a few of the leaders around him felt really afraid that with the continuing movement of the first Intifada, with this new generation of leaders, they would be replaced, that this new generation of leaders would take their legitimacy. And that's why they signed an agreement called the Oslo Agreement, which in fact, Palestinians on the ground, like Hanan Ashrawi, Haider Abdel Shafi, who were negotiating in Madrid, were completely against because it didn't remove the settlements. But Yasser Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas, who was the key person actually making that deal, who's now president, kind of wanted to make that deal because it would give them further relevance on the ground. The problem with the Oslo Agreement is it didn't give Palestinians any type of sovereignty. It promised that Palestinians would have a state five years from when it was signed. But in fact, it was clear from anyone who read, including Edward Said and, and other experts who read the agreement, that it, it wouldn't lead to a state. It would lead to Bantu stands. And what happened, though, is when the PA came to, to Palestine, Israel really engaged in ensuring that with the support of the U.S., that key leaders within the Palestinian security forces, like uh, Dahlan, who's, who's a well-known name right now, like Jibril Arjoub and so forth, worked very closely with the Israeli side on, on what they framed as security. Israel, the reason Israel accepted this agreement was that under international hum humanitarian law, 
Israel had the responsibility for the Palestinian population, and it still does, by the way, legally, for our health, for our education, um, for you know our safety, and, and a lot of other responsibilities. And for Yitzhak Rabin at the time and, and others within the Israeli Knesset, you know, it was, you know, they wanted to quiet down the Intifada. Israel did not look great because it was oppressing Palestinians. And Oslo gave them an opportunity to say, here's this Palestinian entity that can be a subcontractor, do all the work that we don't want to do. The international community will give it money to, to spend on things like education and healthcare. So we don't have to spend that money. And we could spend all our money expanding the settlements because nothing stops us from doing that. And the PA continued to evolve in that structure. You know, Yasser Arafat, who became the president, very clearly, you know, what, whether a person agrees or disagrees with him, very clearly told uh, Palestinian leaders at the time that had criticized him for what the PA was becoming and, and for individuals in the PA like Tahlan and Jibril Arjub who were cooperating with the Israelis. And um, he told uh, Palestinian society, he was like, listen, these are boots that we need to walk through the mud of this period in, but I'll take them off. And when Yasser Arafat realized that the PA wasn't leading to, to what he assumed, he tried taking them off. We all know kind of what happened to him in terms of the second intifada being besieged and then being uh, killed. And Mahmoud Abbas took over. Mahmoud Abbas just moved the PA completely in the direction of doing what Israel wanted it to do, which is suppress Palestinian activism and even nonviolent resistance on the ground, um, continue to engage in kind of a, a peace process that you know everyone knew wasn't going to shift the status quo completely. And essentially what the PA is now is it, it, it plays two functions. It plays a kind of control, um, totalitarian control over the Palestinian population in area A, and it plays the role of protecting uh, the Israelis, um, you know, especially the Israeli settlements and Israeli interests in, in the West Bank. And the reason I say it's complicated, and I'll end here though, is you do have a lot of people in the PA. Um, you know, the PA pays the wages of over 200,000 to 300,000 Palestinians right now. And you do have a lot of good people within the Palestinian Authority who believe that by continuing to operate in this authority, they will at least initially believe they will get to the state. But now that their wages and their livelihood depend on this body, they're kind of stuck in this in this golden prison. And, you know, they still want to free Palestine. Many in the PA you meet with will still criticize the Israeli occupation. But functionally, structurally, they are part of the occupation and, and serve its interests. So it brings me to my next question. Mufadi, you are not only an activist, you're also a student of, 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 uh, of activism. You know, you saw the Arab Spring. You, you've, I know you've thought a lot about what it takes to create popular you know, democratic nonviolent revolutions. Um, talk to us about this. How 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 strong and stable is the PA? What are its what are its weak points and what are its strong points? And 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 how do you analyze the the prospects for the movement that you're involved in? Yeah, the you're you're asking a lot of great questions, and and I'd like to to get, kind of get your opinion on, on some of this as well. I, I didn't know. Now I want to hear from you. Please take as much time as you want. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so 
so, so this is a difficult question. Um, the reason it's difficult is that we're not just engaging as Palestinians against you know one authoritarian entity or one occupation. You're, we're engaging against the Palestinian Authority, which includes you know a lot of our friends and family and you know people that are part of our society, part and parcel, brothers and sisters, literally. And then we're engaging on top of that with the occupation. The way the PA functions, kind of, if, if it was just an authoritarian regime, it's kind of simple what you would do in terms of the school of like civil disobedience, nonviolence. And that is, you would pull away public support and particularly its key pillars, right? The security forces, you would pull the security forces away from supporting the PA. You would pull the members of the political party Fatah from supporting the PA. And you would ensure that uh, the international community boycotted and shamed and, and sanctioned the, the Palestinian Authority. Now, the reason it's challenging to do that here is number one, or the challenges, not that it's challenging, but the, the challenges in doing that. Number one, as Palestinians, the PA blackmails us with the idea of spilling Palestinian blood. Um, and in, in the sense that they threaten what we've seen, you know, blood was spilled, not just Nizars, but people being beaten in the street. And as Palestinians, we are willing to, to sacrifice our lives for freedom from the occupation. But as an occupied society, we don't want you know, internal strife and division to, to happen. And the second thing is that because of the function that the PA plays, it's also hard to do you know, what activists kind of did in, in Egypt and elsewhere, which is to say, completely boycott or do not engage with the Palestinian Authority, because we, we need the international community to at least support part of what, what it's supposed to do until we can transition out of it. You know, so, so those are some of the challenges that we need to engage with. And then, you know, we, we're dealing with, even if the PA kind of, we get rid of the PA leadership and have elections, we'll have to deal with Israel. And we've all seen how, what Israel can do in terms of besieging. So those are all questions we're actively asking. But where the PA is right now, it's, it's very weak. Um, from, from my engagement in the last two days with members of all the political parties, including Fatah, the majority of them are against the current leadership, particularly there's a triangle at the top defined by President Abbas, head of general intelligence, Majid Faraj, and head of coordination with Israel, Hussein al-Sheikh. And society is completely against those three, wants to, to take them down. And the second point is that people's kind of fear barrier has been broken by the, continuing to go down to the street and last but not least, I think there's a new generation right now, and this is very significant. Palestinian demographics, 70 to 75% are under the age of, of 30. And this new generation is mostly unemployed and, and wants a future where they see, you know, people like Muna and uh, Muhammad al-Kurd, you know, protesting in Sheikh Jarrah, and they want to be protesting against the occupation and struggling to liberate Palestine just like what they're seeing in Jerusalem and elsewhere, and they see the, the PA as a key obstacle to that. So all those things coming together, my, you know, what I expect we'll see is kind of ups and downs in the next year, where like mass protests like we're seeing now, and then people relaxing and quieting down. But I think the PA's pillars are, are shaking. And what we'll need to make sure of is that funding specifically to the security forces 
um, you know, ends on one hand, and we need to make sure that the international community stops respecting Abbas's legitimacy because without having elections, he's not the legitimate leader anymore. And is the goal to replace Mahmoud Abbas with the democratically legitimate leadership of the PA, or is the goal to eliminate the PA as a, as a, as a subcontractor? The goal is to transform the PA and, and establish a representative leadership for the PLO, not just the PA. Mm-hmm. So Palestinians around the world deserve democratic representation. And the goal is to, to achieve that, um, you know, and, and remove Mahmoud Abbas from his position and his cronies, right? There's a whole structure underneath Mahmoud Abbas that we're aware of removing. And then once, once you have democratic representation, you need to establish a strategy I think you can have a a powerful liberation-focused self-governing body that takes some of the key responsibilities of the PA, such as education, healthcare, you know, and and other pieces, but that's focused on resisting the occupation, not being its its subcontractor, as as we said. So those are the two kind of big goals. The smaller goals are, of course, getting justice for Nizar and making sure that the PA realizes that by killing Nizar, they will not scare us away. By killing Nizar, the PA lost control of society over the last two months. I think this is an important addition. With the protests in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah across the West Bank, a national strike, and the PA felt like it was not relevant anymore. This murder, its goal is to create relevance and show that they can kill, they can arrest without consequences. And so the kind of short-term goal of these protests is to make the PA realize that they are not in control um, anymore. And then that can take us towards the larger goals. I would imagine that, you know, um, Israel would not stand idly by and watch uh, as uh, this entity that's doing very valuable security cooperation from its point of view were to be brought down and replaced by an entity that wasn't going to do that security cooperation because it would make the Israeli government's life more difficult. Um, Do you have a sense of what role uh, Israel is Israel is playing now in uh, in the PA's response to this this uprising? Yeah, I mean one one thing that's clear is Israel definitely provides strategic support. Um, you know, it, it was publicized that the head of the Shabak, the Israeli Interior Intelligence, met with Mahmoud Abbas right before he canceled the elections. Mm. You know, even Mahmoud Abbas spoke to that. And so specifically the Israeli kind of security forces and military is certainly providing input and insight into how the PA deals with this current moment uh, because they do not want it to collapse. And my, my expectation is that if they see that the PA is close to collapse, what we will begin to see is Israel allowing more money to come into the PA to, to strengthen it. What we'll begin to see is even Israel kind of attacking activists and in fact, one thing that we know happens is that when there are activists that uh, the PA can't arrest because it will cause a lot of uproar because they're so locally respected, what it does is it informs Israel and then Israel comes and arrests them and puts them under administrative detention. There are at least two dozen people I know that have been arrested that way and that we are you know, 90% sure they were arrested by Israel because the PA wanted them and couldn't take them. So Israel does play that role. Um, they try to do so quietly because, of course, it looks bad for, for the PA, but they are present and they will become more present if, if they see the PA about to fall apart.
I wonder if you can talk about the how you think about the role of of Fatah's, you know, uh, a main kind of political adversary, Hamas. So if you think about the Egyptian example, you have a popular uprising against a very entrenched dictator, and then it's the Muslim Brotherhood that ultimately ends up, you know, filling the, the being our organ best, best organized to fill the political vacuum until again there's a coup after they win they the, uh, Mohammed Morsi wins that election. So I, uh, I'm interested in what role, uh, and of course Hamas is the Palestinian wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. So I'm interested in what role you feel like uh, Hamas is playing in the protests now, and how you think about the question because obviously they don't have a great civil liberties, human rights record in Gaza either, you know, how one thinks about what role they can or should not play in the transformation that you want to see uh, in the West Bank. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a complicated question. I'll, I'll start by the simple process, which is so far Hamas hasn't been um, significantly present at the, the protests happening. They were present in, of course, Nazar's funeral procession, even though he's not Hamas, but they showed that they were against this murder. And they've been publicly speaking against the murder of Nazar overall, but they've not been engaging in the protests. That's largely for, for two reasons, um, because the PA has, with, with the support of Israel, really weakened their presence in the West Bank. So they're, they're afraid. Um, and, and the second is because they reached a truce in, in Gaza and the PA is going to need to play a role in kind of the rebuilding of Gaza and the engagement with the Egyptians and, and others. So I think Hamas is trying not to move too quick, you know, because they do not want to kind of tear down whatever agreement they may have on this front with, with the PA and the Egyptians and, and Israel on that front. So that's just to answer kind of where Hamas is right now. Um, but Hamas has also, you know, has gained in popularity. And I think they know that if elections happen, when you compare them with Mahmoud Abbas and, and his parties, they may get more support um, because they're seen as just kind of more, more moral and still more antagonistic to the occupation than the PA is. So where, do, where does Hamas come in in the future? I mean, the way I see it, you know, whether it's, it's Fatah as a party or Hamas or other parties, they're all part of the Palestinian fabric of, of society. And what we will need to do as, as a kind of youth, as a new generation, where I engage with people from all of these different parties, is transform the kind of broken old cliches that have defined what these parties look like and how they engage and create a interwoven fabric fo focused on key values that can move the struggle forward. And in democratic elections, uh, my sense is, you know, honestly, Hamas has learned the lesson. They were going to run in the PLC elections, but they designed their whole campaign not to become the government because they have learned from their experience in 2006 that if they become the government, it's costly and they're not good at running governments as we see in Gaza. So my sense is like if, if this moves forward, Hamas will be a key player, but they will not want to be the ones that are that are holding government and holding power. Uh, because, because they understand the costs and their inability to, to do so. I think we're still far from that conversation. I think we st still need to figure out how to reform uh, the PLO as, as a body that can represent all, all Palestinians. And I, I want to add that, of course, Hamas's civil liberties, uh, its, res its respect for civil liberties in Gaza 
is almost as bad as as the PA um, to to in some in some extents. So they haven't been good on on this front either. Um, I had a Palestinian friend who said to me, he said I heard say last you know a few days ago he said um, something something along the lines of you. This is why I don't want it, uh, a Palestinian state. Why I want equality in one state because I don't want people like the people who killed uh, Nizabanat to be to be running the government. I, I'm interested in. Um, if you feel like the PA's mounting growing brutality um, has had an impact on the debate uh, among Palestinians, uh, you know, in the West Bank and beyond on this question of whether the goal is, is an independent, sovereign Palestinian state or whether the goal is, 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 equal, is equality or, or, or some, you know, combination of those. Yeah. And, you know, what I would tell, what I would tell your friend is mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's it's very easy sometimes to look at the like identity politics, right? Like these these are Palestinians or these like Arab regimes, and look what they've become. And I, you know, it's it, I don't say this out of like conviction. I say this out of a lot of studies in political science, right? It's not the the identities of those in power that matters. It's the structures and then the global structures around them if they become rentier states. So the reason the PA is like this is because. Partially because of its partially because it was created and designed to be like this. The same thing with a lot of governments in the Middle East that were designed to be kind of you know post-colonial um, entities, but that still supported certain interests uh, abroad. And that's why a lot of the militaries locally, if they're not funded by oil, uh, they're funded by uh, like in Egypt, you know, by by U.S. Um, money and so forth. So I just want to say, you know, on that front, that it's important when we analyze these things to like not just focus on that bit. Now, in in the change of the the conversation um, on the ground, the the Palestinian conversation has shifted um, less towards one state and two state, but more towards what's the social contract that we want to create, like what, what is the future? There was a hashtag that recently went viral in Palestine, and it was you know, imagine if you were free and what would your tweets be like? And so people were tweeting like they're free. And you can see from those tweets, you know, nobody was tweeting um, things along the lines of, you know, I voted in this one state or I I voted in this free Palestinian state. People's focus was on on the, the way they lived their life and what freedoms they had generally. And I think this is what the PA has done is the the debate within civil society groups that I met with in the last couple of days is, man, we really need to think how when we create our freedom, no matter what it looks like, that there's a social contract that makes what happened in the last week impossible to happen in our society. So it's looking at the contractual aspects and the constitutional aspects and not on, you know, is it one state or two state, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fadi, the last question I wanted to ask you is, is just um, um, a more personal one, which is, uh, I'm sure it's, it's um, you know, uh, it's occurred to you um, uh, that you yourself may well be in real danger. Um, and I just, um, uh, I honestly can't imagine what it's like to be doing the work that you're doing, knowing that you're facing not just one repressive regime, but two um, in the in the PA and then behind behind it, the, the Israeli, the Israeli army and the Israeli government. And um, uh, I'm just wondering how how you think about um, the risk that you that you take by doing the work you do. Yes, it's um, I mean, 
it's, you know, when you do this work, um, one, one thing that was actually taught to me by a South African freedom, uh, freedom fighter, basically, someone who played the key role in the fight against apartheid. And, you know, what they told me in, in that conversation, because we were discussing this question, how do you assess risk and is it worth it and so forth, is they said, you need to kind of look at the risks and be serious and realistic about what you're risking. And in my case, I know that, you know, my life is at stake. I know that my freedom is at stake. I know that people I love are, are being threatened. But he also said, then you look at, you know, what you're fighting for and you ask yourself, is what you're fighting for worth the risk that you're taking? taking? And when I look at the future that we are trying to create, um, a future where, you know, any, any child, I want like people listening here to, to imagine any child they know in, in, in the Middle East, in, in kind of the Holy Land, and imagine a future where that child can grow up to be anything they want to be in the world, where they grow up happy and joyful, where they can take a train from Morocco to Dubai, passing through Jerusalem, and kind of talk about a future where they are healthy and where they don't have to worry about what their kind of, if their parents are going to survive the next day or what refugee camps are going to end up next month. That future is worth uh, fighting for. And it's not just the future for this region. I think if we actually create the change we're seeking, it will be transformative for the world. So if, if I die, you know, on, on the path to achieving that, and if I bring humanity and my people a step closer to that, then um, I'm willing to, to take that risk. And I, I say that, you know, with a deep conviction, but I also don't want to come off as, as a hero to anybody listening. You know, I, I do get scared. Um, in the last two days, um, they have been like spreading rumors about me um, trying to get thugs and people to attack me in the streets. Um, I, I have seen my, my sisters being attacked and it's not easy. It's, it's easy to, to see the risk coming towards you and be willing to take it. But when they start targeting uh, people you care about, it's, it's not easy. It's not something I like. It's not something that I don't care about. It's, it's terrifying, but we won't let them terrorize us. Wow. Um, Fadi, I, I pray for your safety. And um, you are a, a profound inspiration um, to many of us uh, uh, who, um, uh, who don't labor under any of the, the threats that you do. And I, I would just hope that for people who are listening to this and who are thinking about the much, much, much smaller sacrifices that they might need to make in the United States, whether they're a politician or a Jewish community leader or a journalist, that the, the, the minuscule threats, you know, problems that they may face if they actually speak with conviction, that they'll listen to you and recognize that it's the least they can do um, uh, is to, is to add their voice to the to the to the extraordinary work that you're doing. Um, uh, I'm I'm uh, wishing you all of the best, and um, I, I hope that uh, we'll have a chance to talk again soon. Definitely, it's always nice to to connect, and uh, it's it's a pleasure speaking to you. And I I do wish that everybody listening to us kind of not not for our sake, but but for their sake, uh, take the necessary steps to end end their complicity. Uh, in, in any way that it is existing uh, with, with both Israel's occupation and its little subcontractor, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for joining us today, Fadi. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts podcast, a, pod- a project of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. You can visit our website at fmep.org to subscribe to our many resources and find today's podcast episode posted. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. I'm Peter Beinart, and I look forward to the next episode.